Welcome again to Kingdom 101, and especially to those listening in also, great to have you uh, tune in once more to our SoundCloud channel. Uh, we're going to pray, and then we will start this evening's session. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We know your presence is here with us. Holy Spirit, will you teach us as always? Lord Jesus, be glorified, magnified as we declare your word and your ways of the kingdom. Be with me and be with everyone here and also listening in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been going through our journey of Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9. I lose count how many uh, sessions it has been already, uh, but it's been quite a while. And so we've been going through these two chapters. Let's do a quick summary. You know that, that in these two chapters, you would see three groups of ten miracles. Matthew, after sharing about Jesus' teaching at the Sermon on the Mount, shows him demonstrating the power of the kingdom as well as training his disciples. So you see three groups of miracles with discipleship footnotes in between. I think we've done quite well. We've gone through the first group and then there was this teaching about following Jesus with total devotion. Then we went through the second group followed by Two teachings on how you understand holiness. Remember the Pharisees were upset with Jesus, having a good time with the sinners and with the tax collectors. But then later on, John's disciples came in and said that, how come we fast and then your people or yourself, you don't fast? Um, the way you understand holiness. First group, second group, and then now we come to the third group. Quite good progress, I must say. Uh, so thanks for journeying together with me. But tonight, if we look at this and we look at Matthew chapter 8 and 9, if it was converted into a play, I'm a screenwriter of sorts, I write plays uh, before, if you read literature and you study some of these theatre things, then if you convert Matthew 8 and 9 into a play, we would have a play with three acts, instead of three groups, right? Three acts. And so act one, we have scene one, scene two, and scene three, right? Scene one would have been the leper who was healed, scene two, the centurion's servant, and scene three, Peter's mother-in-law, and followed by a little interlude. Then we have act two, scenes one, two, and three. Scene one would have been Jesus calming the storm, uh, scene two, casting out the demons, and the third one would be the paralytic, quite drama, right, coming through the roof, so that would have been Act 2. Now, coming into the third group, this would be Act 3, and it would open with scene number 1. Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26. All right, so ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the play tonight. You've come back from intermission, right? Act 3 and scene 1. Let's read the script here. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and a noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, 
Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all that land. That's written in the book of Matthew. If you want the parallel passages in the Synoptic Gospels, you'll find it in Mark chapter 5, 22 to 43, as well as Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. Now, we will draw reference from these passages a little bit later, but let's look at what Matthew is really trying to say. The scene opens with Jesus with John's disciples, right? While they were speaking and while Jesus spoke these things to them. So if you want to know what was said, go and listen to the past sessions. Then you understand the drama that sort of unfolded. And whilst that is happening, when it was like a to-be-continued and you went for an intermission, you came back and the curtains opened, there they were in that scene. Presumably, they were still in Matthew's house, right? Because that's where the entire scene was. Suddenly, this rather well-dressed man comes in, enters stage right or left, depending on how you want it. And he seeks Jesus' attention and asks for his help because his daughter was on the verge of dying. Now, Matthew records and says, my daughter is dead. But if you read Mark and Luke, it actually says that my daughter is at the point of death. Now, Matthew was very clear. All he wanted to do was to get to the point, meaning to say, daughter is dead. Jesus raises the dead. Remember, Jesus has authority over this, this, that, that. And also, he has authority over death. And so it is not an inconsistent recording. Matthew draws his information from Mark and he condenses it. The daughter was almost as good as dead. And I believe that's why the ruler came to Jesus in that way. Jesus obliges and follows him. And in the end, the girl uh, comes back to life. Ta-da! The scene ends. And you and I know this story. And again, I say Matthew's intent, very clear, very precise, very consistent. Jesus has authority over death. And I know, I mean, it's a big deal. I mean, let's not, let's not trivialize this. It is a big deal. It is amazing. It is impressive. It is definitely praiseworthy. But if you look at the entire scene, it's, this guy comes, Jesus follows, and the girl gets healed, and that's in it. Every time I read this passage, there is something down there that catches my attention a lot more. And every time I hear people preach, sometimes also we gloss over the girl being raised from the dead, but there is a person that steals the scene. I don't know if you agree with me, right? But that's my personal opinion. And by the looks of the heads nodding here and there, it's like, yeah, 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 this one more exciting. Uh, there's, there's this woman that comes, right? Suddenly, right in between, right smack in the middle of the scene, and she steals the scene takes over completely. When you think of this whole passage, it, this one is more memorable and more interesting. The woman with the issue of blood than even the girl that was raised from the dead. If there was an award for the best supporting actress, she would have got it. That's how interesting this scene is. And I believe the scene is added because it adds so much more to the entire story. And we're going to learn so much because of this woman and her situation being inserted. She steals the entire scene, but she doesn't dominate anything else. She actually adds color to everything. 
And that's what I want to spend time on this evening to show you how God's words and God's situations, the situations that we see, are all uh, ordained by the Lord for a very, very specific purpose. Once again, I say raising the dead is a big deal. Let's, let's not make it any smaller than it is. It's a very, very big deal. In the Gospels, Jesus is recorded to raise two other persons only. And in the Old Testament, it was written of Elijah first that raises someone, and then later on, Elisha, his disciple. And so these are big things. But let's see what we can learn from this woman coming in about this whole passage. Then if she had not been in, we would have missed so many more things. The first point, let me title it as different yet similar. In literature, and since we're talking about plays down here, there's this word called a foil. Have you heard this before? Do you know what's a foil? F-O-I-L, not aluminium foil. Huh? A foil is a character, is a person that takes on this role. And the role of this foil is a character that shows qualities that are in contrast with the qualities of another character. So if you are a playwright, if you're writing a story, you want to showcase this person, his character or her character, you introduce another character of contrast so that that character becomes even more prominent. Can you see this? And so, although the woman steals the scene, she's there for a reason, and I'll show you as we move along. The objective is to highlight the traits of the other character. The term foil, though generally being applied to a contrasting character, may also be used for any comparison that is drawn to portray a difference between two things. And so we see both the, the man that approaches Jesus and the woman that approaches Jesus, they are different and yet they are similar. Journey with me. Number one, he's a man. She's a woman. Very different then. Right? And the Bible records this man is not any old man. He is a ruler of the synagogue. Contrasted with a woman found on the streets. Can you see that juxtaposition? This ruler of the synagogue, think uh, in today's terms, chairman of the church elder board. Okay, that's his position. In a local executive committee, he would be the chairperson. He runs the show. He is the executive person that makes sure that the whole synagogue is okay, the programs are run properly, and so on. So here he is, a man versus a woman, a man who was a ruler versus a woman who is on the streets. We discover also he's not just a man, he's got a name. And Matthew doesn't tell us, but Mark does. His name is Jairus. But the woman is just the woman. A certain woman. But there's a man. His name was Jairus. He's named and she is unnamed. He's a man's a woman. And she's just a certain woman. Jairus runs the synagogue. So I presume he is known, respected, and reputable. Accepted in the synagogue. When he walks in, everyone is like, whoa, you know, Chairman Lilo. Maybe he has his own car park space for his horse. Car park, no, horse park. I don't know, right? Sometimes it happens that way. The woman would have been run out of the synagogue. Why? Because she had an issue of blood. And in the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 15, 
specifically verse 25. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, it's a, it's a woman issue, we know, right? It's a gynecological issue. Other than at the time of a customary impurity, or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity, that means outside of what is accepted in her menstrual cycle. All the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. Now guys, we have learned about unclean and clean, yes? Okay, so we will not go there. But you understand, if she's unclean, she can't even come near the synagogue. She cannot go into the synagogue. Jairus would have been respected and welcomed in the synagogue. She would have been run out of the synagogue if she even dared try to come close. After 12 years, now Jairus is known. You say, oh, this certain woman unknown. No, after 12 years, maybe she's also known, but known for her uncleanness. How would you like that? And look at this character down here. She's inserted just to show you the extremes of these two characters. Jairus would lead the services that the woman is not even allowed to attend. Jairus is also probably a person of means. We're told he has a house and he was able to afford quite a big team of professional mourners, as we understand. It was custom of, of those days that a Jewish funeral or wake was a very noisy affair. You have to hire the flute players and you must hire the wailing women because it's a time that is very, very sad. And so if you are rich, you have a lot of people attend the wake, people will be mourning, and you hire even more mourners. So you see how rich you are. Like in today's wake, there are certain uh, Chinese customs, right? You count how many blankets there are. Correct? The more blankets, the, the richer and the more higher status is this person, correct? But if you don't even see one blanket, I know Christians don't have blankets, huh? Okay, you don't see flowers or something like that. Then this person is so poor, no one wants to come. The custom was what? You must employ at least two flute players and one mourner. So at least this person can have a decent goodbye. So Jairus was probably rich, had means. He was able to afford all these because it was a big crowd when Jesus went there. The woman was poor. I w- we don't know whether she was rich before or not, or was she catered for before, but in those days, the women don't work. And so likely, she was not catered for or cared for. Now, after 12 years of disease, Mark chapter 5, verse 26 says, she spent all that she had. She's seen the best of the best. She's just been wiped out dry. Can you see? Look at the extreme again. All right, so this character is placed there for us to see that extreme. Jairus was a family man. He was concerned for his daughter. How about the woman? I'm not saying that she didn't come from a family, no. But her family may have rejected her because she's unclean. There's no one else to care for her. No one is bothered about her. Now, because of a condition where there's this issue of blood. Number one, she's unclean. Number two, because she's unclean, do you think she is marriageable? The men wouldn't want her, right? And so she's rejected and she's left by the side. She couldn't marry. And even if she had married before, we don't know when this condition started, right? But the moment it started and it it refused to end, the men could divorce her. 
So can you see, Jairus was a person with a family, concerned with love, with care. He had a daughter or maybe had other children, we don't know. But for her, she is unable to look after herself. No one wants to bother about her. She cannot marry. And even if she married, she would have been thrown out. Why? Not only because of the flow, but because she could not bear children. That was the stigma of those days. What's more, consider the way they approached Jesus. It was very different. Jairus walks into the party. He comes before Jesus with respect. He bows, he worships Jesus, but, but he came face to face with Jesus. He says, Lord, you know, will, you, will you come? If you can come, and this will happen. He comes before Jesus. The woman crawls behind Jesus. She came from behind with a shame and a sense of unworthiness to make any request. I mean, this is crazy. When you, sometimes we, we miss these things when we read the Bible, right? Jairus sought Jesus' face. The woman sought Jesus' back. Does it remind you of a story in Exodus where, where Moses says, Lord, you, God, you've got to show me your glory. And God says, I cannot show you my face because it's just so glorious, you will die. I show you my back. And the one thing beautiful is, although we may say, ah, you're so poor thing, the man, Jairus can see the face, the woman only see the back. Do you know, Moses saw the back of God and he came down with his face glowing. So whether God show you the face or God show you his back, whether you approach Jesus in front or behind, his glory is still the same. But you see the contrast. All she felt worthy was just to to touch the the hem of his garment. And very likely this would have been Jesus' prayer shawl. In the Old Testament, it was commanded by God um, that you will will make for yourself tassels on the corners of your garments so that these will become a reminder for you to pray, for you to remember the commandments, for you to keep God's laws, that you will not stray. That was the reason for having these tassels or this hem, this edge of the garment. Later on, this hem or this edge of the garment became a status symbol. It became a religious symbol. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 5, Jesus would speak against the Pharisees and say that their works they do to be seen by men, they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garment. So if a hem is 1 cm, maybe their hem was 1 foot. So that if you look at a 1 cm hem, it means I obey only 1 cm. But if you see my hem is almost reaching up to my waist, well, then I'm very good in keeping God's commandment, you see? How holy and how religious I am. That was the purpose then. But why did she only reach out to touch this hem? Was it just about unworthiness? If you study the different situations in the Bible, we learn that seizing the edge of someone's garment was a gesture of of fervent entreaty in biblical and ancient Near East tradition. It was a way of saying, I recognize your authority. I'm desperate. You can help me. I can't grab you by the collar. I hold your garment. You follow? In the book of 1 Samuel chapter 15, remember that Saul did a a wrong sacrifice and Samuel told Saul, this day, you're gone. I mean, that's it. This kingdom is over. 
Your kingdom, your time is over. And he turns and he walks away. And you go read your Bible. He, Saul grabs his garment and tears his garment. He was, he was so desperate. He didn't want to lose the kingdom. And Samuel had the authority. He recognized that authority, grabbed it, tore it. And then Samuel turned around and said, this is it. I'm telling you, it's over. You can grab anything else you want. It's not coming back. It's also a mark of respect and reverence because you appreciate their authority. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 4 to 7. This is a story we are familiar with. David cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, remember, in the cave? And after that, he felt so bad. He felt so lousy about this. And that's why after that, he says, Cannot, this is the Lord's anointed. I mean, what am I doing? I'm, I'm touching this authority. I do not revere it enough. So it's a recognition of authority. And as you believe and agree with the authority, you are requesting by faith. And I believe this woman would have heard about Jesus, would have seen Jesus in action, and saw that he moved and demonstrated an authority that was very, very, very different. And she says, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. I don't know if she was the very first one or not, or you know, whether she set a precedent or not. Or was she just following a custom of that day where she might have touched the hem of another rabbi somewhere else? I don't know. But I know in Matthew chapter 14, later on, when we finally get there, we will come to this verse that says that there were many who begged Jesus that they might touch the hem of His garment, and as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Well, it was like, hey woman, you touch what, huh? We touch the hem of the garment. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, we're lining up to touch the hem of the garment. Did she set the precedent or was it already a custom? I don't know. Whatever the case, let me say this. I think it's okay to seek Jesus by faith. Right? Just, just go to Him, seek Him by faith, but don't seek Him by superstition. Do you understand the difference here? Sometimes Christians also got superstition, you know? Huh? If I pray facing this way, uh, it will work, you know. If I pray more than four times, uh, what jinx, you know, cannot. After I pray, if I say something, uh, no wonder it didn't come through, you know. I cancel my own. I mean, we have all these superstitious things, you know. I think we must be very careful, huh? It makes us sound very silly and look very stupid, uh. okay? How do you approach Jesus by faith? Number one, you believe in His authority. That's it. It's as straightforward. Number one is that. Number two is also that. Just believe in His authority. Number three also. As you believe, you appeal to His authority. That's it. And you submit. That's all she did. And I think we can go to Jesus by faith. Sometimes we need a touch point of faith. Fine. But don't make the touch point your object of faith. Jesus is the person that you have faith in. Amen. I mean, you hear of different traditions and practices where people try to touch relics, yes? They line up just to touch relics uh, so that there will be supernatural uh, blessings and so on. Let us not swing to that kind of uh, superstition. So this is my first point, very long point. But it's a very significant one, can you see? Because once you see the difference and you yet you see the similarities... You get the principle of what this passage might be obliquely telling us. They were both so different, and yet they were both so similar. They were both so desperately in need of Jesus. 
I don't care how much you earn, how many cars you have. Uh, I don't care whether you are poor or rich in that sense. When we come to a point of need, we all need Jesus. We also see that His authority is over everyone, status notwithstanding. And He is over everything. Whether you are known or whether you are unknown, whether your need is physical or spiritual, it makes no difference. Jesus responds to our heart of faith coming to Him. When we recognize His authority, when we seek Him by faith, I believe everyone is welcome to approach Jesus. And so if you're listening to this, this invitation is for you. We will never be worthy in that sense, but His grace is always sufficient for everyone. By the time we wait to be worthy, then there's no need for grace anymore. That's what grace is about. The second thing we see is that faith is a risky business. Faith is risky. And there are times it's going to cost you something. Jairus risked his reputation. Now you think, huh? he is like the man of the synagogue, right? Of the religious center of that city. He's got a reputation. How did he risk it? He walked into an entire house full of tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> right? I mean, come on. He would have been serving alongside the Pharisees who were probably speaking at the synagogue also, correct? And so if he offends the Pharisees, big problem. He might lose his entire position the next day. They just confronted Jesus. Why are you having a good time with tax collectors and sinners? And here's the chairman of the church board walking in to tax collectors and sinners. He could have lost everything that day. The woman risked even more rejection, and not only rejection, she risked her life. Okay, it's not just she stands at the corner and everyone sees her and she, and, and she has to shout, I'm unclean. Right? She's going to declare, I'm unclean. And they'll just say, you don't come here. She crawls right through, squeezes through. I mean, the guys probably didn't notice her because they're all following Jesus. It's like, okay, let's go see show, you know. I mean, it's Jairus. You know? Jesus is following Jairus. If they discovered her, she would have lost her life. They would have grabbed her, thrown her out, stoned her right there, and then that would have been the end. Faith is a risky business. But you see, when we reach a point that is beyond ourselves, have you come to that point before sometimes? When we reach a point that's beyond ourselves, uh, we come to a point where we say, I, I don't care what people say anymore. Nah. You can say what you want to say. Nah. You can call me names. Nah. You can throw things at me. Nah. The need is far greater than my need for your acceptance. When we come to a point that's beyond ourselves, Jairus, losing everything was better than losing his daughter. Have you come to that point? For the woman, what, was, what else was there to lose? <laughs> She's already lost everything. She had everything to gain, actually. And so here's the principle, my friends. Faith is risky business. What is keeping you from Jesus? What would you risk to get to Jesus? Is pride holding you back? Sometimes it can be the smallest things, isn't it? I mean, you can have an altar call, everyone's going up there, and you're sitting down there going, I'm not going up. Why must I go up? Jesus can touch me here. Right? Sometimes it could just be that. And you think about it, actually very small matter, you know. 
But don't want means don't want. Pride can keep us back. Our position, our reputation, whatever, our friends, our job. What's keeping you from Jesus? Would you be crazy for Him? I mean, in a good sense. See, passive faith carries no risk. Active faith may involve some risk. You understand the difference? Passive faith is I sit down, I just believe, I just believe, I just believe, oh, I just believe. You just sit down and do nothing because you say, faith means believe, what means I cannot do anything. Now that's taking it to an extreme that doesn't help you also. But when it's active faith, then you're saying, okay, I believe. And because I believe, I move. Ah, that kind of faith, huh, very important and very lacking in the church of Jesus Christ. Faith does not mean doing nothing at all and expecting God to come through. Now you've got to find that balance of what it means to rest in the Lord, to be still. There's a time for that. But both Jairus and the woman did all they could to get to Jesus. They acted on their faith. And for some of us, we need to understand the difference. What it means to act on our faith is not to try to solve a problem, but to act on faith is to get to Jesus. There's a huge difference down there. Point number three, dead or alive. Point I want you to see is this. We can be alive and already have no life. This was the case of the woman. She had nothing to lose. I mean, she's already lost everything already. She might as well have been dead, right? Now, why do I talk about life? Because the issue of blood is an issue of life. Am I being biblical? Genesis 9 verse 4, You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Life is represented by the blood. Blood would show forth the life. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11, Blood is used as an atonement for a life. So if someone kills someone, if you shed blood, then a life for a life. You understand? So blood and life are always synonymous. For the girl, if she was at the point of death, her life was draining away. She was dying. And we are told later on she's 12 years old. In fact, 12 years old would have been just a couple, one or two years or maybe three years of her coming into puberty. She was, her life was just beginning. Womanhood was just starting. Am I correct? Her life was just starting and her life was already draining away. Can you see this? The woman's life has been draining away for the past 12 years. You have a 12-year-old girl and you have a woman who is suffering for 12 years. Now, if her bleeding, if her menstrual cycle started and then suddenly it didn't stop at all, then her life started to end when her life was starting to begin. She just saw it drain out of her, dissipate, and although she was alive, she had no life at all. She was as good as dead. Everywhere she went, right? Being rejected, she could be very careful, not, don't touch people. There was just no life. And so let me draw a parallel for us to ask ourselves the question, are you alive but have no life? Don't answer too quickly, huh? We may not have a physical problem, you know, but a lot of people have life but no life, you know? Correct? We are walking around like the living dead, like zombies. Jesus said, I came so that you might have life and have it more abundantly. We are to have abundant life. We are already raised to new life. We have died to self. We are living with a different purpose. And then we are alive but still no life. 
Sunday morning, very hard to wake up, I know. Well, worship leader on Sunday morning is the most, the most difficult one. Come on, guys, let's clap our hands. <laughs> but it's not just the clapping of hands, right? If the heart is not engaged with the Lord, you are dead. There's no life. It can be disease. It can be rejection, ridicule. Some people can label us, call us. It can be fear that keeps us, hurts that hold you back. Unforgiveness, you're killing yourself. You think you don't want to forgive, that means you're, you're, you're like, see, I'll never forgive you. <laughs> I kill you. But actually, you're killing yourself. If you hold bitterness and all, you may be like the woman. Life can be draining out of you day by day. See, Jesus has a better answer. <laughs> He's got a better solution. There's a better way. So you could ask yourself, what is draining life from you? Who is draining life from you? You need to come to Jesus. Eternal life doesn't begin only after I die and say, okay, I go heaven, that's the best thing. Jesus said what? Eternal life is knowing me. And if you know him now, eternal life starts. And with eternal life, right now, you have abundant life. You live with a different purpose. Paul says, if you kill me, if I die now, also good. But if I don't die, also good. Because I have a lot of things to do still. See, his perspective of life is very different eh? For us, ah, you, you count this, count that. Lah. So scared this, so scared that. Lah. Don't know what if I serve God, ah, then people come and attack me. How? I think Jesus wants us to live the kingdom life with the king. Amen? Amen. So don't be dead and alive at the same time, okay? okay? The only thing you can be dead and alive is I have died to self already. I'm now alive for Jesus. That's the right phrase that you want to have. Point number four is hidden shame and open restoration. Hidden shame and open restoration. Again, Matthew records the shortest account. His intention, very clear. Jesus has authority over death and over disease. Now, we know that already. But without Mark and Luke, we will miss out on the details. But if you go back and read Mark chapter 5, verse 30 to 33, there's an account there, parallel in the one in Luke chapter 8, 45 to 47. We see that for Jairus' daughter... That miracle was performed behind closed doors. He put the, all the crowd out. I mean, they were laughing at him. And so the word that says he put them outside is the same Greek word for casting out demons. Interesting, huh? huh? Just before this, we read of a miracle where Jesus cast out the demon. Now he cast out the crowd. And probably very... Very, with a lot of authority to say, you guys, just stay out there. We don't need you here. So he does this behind closed doors. And then after that, very funny, he tells them, commanded them strictly that no one should know it. How do you keep this kind of news to yourself? I mean, the girl has died. Everyone is shouting and wailing and screaming. Everyone has witnessed. The, doc the doctors have certified her, give death certificate already. Otherwise, how can have mourners down there? Right? So it's not passing out or faint or what, you know. Every, the whole town knows this guy is the most celebrated religious figure. Now the daughter gets up and asks for a Big Mac. How do you keep this kind of news to yourself? Obviously, the report would have gone far and wide. But for the woman, Jesus handled it very differently. He didn't say, don't tell anybody. What she experienced, she actually experienced immediate healing, you know. What's the problem here? No one knew. No one knew that she was healed. 
it was just between her and Jesus, right? And so she would have been very happy to say, oh, it's between me and Jesus. Thank you. But not Jesus, you see. Jesus created a scene. He, he sort of flung the doors wide open for her while he closed the other one. It's quite funny. And Jesus exposes her. And you know what has happened, right? He was walking and he suddenly feels, hey, power, go out. Wow, I'm praying for my ministry to be like that, man. Really? You know what I mean? There have only been a few instances where when I pray for people, you know, and I minister, I mean, I do sense something, but I cannot say I feel power flowing. Okay? I'm, I'm praying, you know, that, Lord, what does this mean? You know, all I know is I feel very tired after that. Power flows out. He turns and he goes, who touched my clothes? And then his disciples looked at him and said, hey, hello, boss, the multitude's all around you, huh? And then you say, who touched me? That's the Singlish international version. Huh? Okay. Then he looked around and he sees her. The crowds dissipate. And there's this woman like that. He exposes her. Can you imagine how you would have felt if you were that woman then? And so the Bible records with fear, with fear and trembling, she had to describe her condition, what had happened. You know why it's so scary? Because no one could have believed her, right? And now that she's exposed, she's an open target right in the middle. And then Jesus restores her. See, Jesus did not expose her secret shame to shame her further. He did it on purpose to openly declare her restoration. Why? Because as she has been rejected by the community, now she needs to be accepted by that same community. And no one might be taking her word for it because it's an internal condition and it's been there for 12 years and no one would have, might have believed her. And you know how when someone is unclean, needs to be pronounced clean. She needs to present herself to the authorities. Now, who are the authorities, guys? Can you remember that this man called Jairus standing next nearby? He's the chairman of the board. He just witnessed everything. I mean, how cool is God? It was Jairus set up. I mean, I look at this, I, I can't help but smile, you know. I say, God, you, you got, you, you, well, man, you're good, man. No, not one man. Well, God, you're good, man. I mean, come on. Jairus was there. He was witnessing the entire healing and the restoration. How do you explain the timing of God? And here's the principle for us to, to learn from. Number one is shame and guilt keeps people out of community. I'm sure you know someone who struggles with this. Maybe you struggle with this. But if you know someone or different people within your church community, would you embrace those whom Jesus has restored? See, it's, it's sad, you know. I mean, His blood is sufficient for all of us, yes? But we draw lines. Correct? It's like, I, I feel I'm more worthy than you are more worthy. Or I'm more spiritual, I'm more religious, you know. I, I'm more faithful, you know. So you are, oh, you did all those things. Remember the past, remember the past. I mean, God has already wiped it out. Why are you calling it back? See, so we've got to help restore people with shame and guilt in the past. Embrace them, help them, and push them to Jesus. Don't frown at them, don't judge them, and don't reject them. We are just too good at doing that. 
you hear the stories of ex-offenders where they come back into the church, right? The church says, oh, we've got to do prison ministry. Praise the Lord. Jesus saves these people, restores them. They come into the church and they have to sit one side. We can learn something here, right? And we should be reminded. Would you be willing to share how God has saved and restored you from your own shame and your own guilt? Now, let's be careful with this. I don't have time to teach this, to unpack this. So don't suddenly tomorrow go and stand in the church and declare everything. All right? It needs wisdom. There's a way to do this, okay? But I'm saying, you see, the church needs to be a safe place, but it's not. We are struggling with sexual immorality and sexual sins because... We dare not talk about these things. There's a sister called Jennifer Heng, and I can mention her because she has openly come out to share about her two abortions in the past that wrecked her. But when she came into the love of God, God restored her, and today she declares it not with pride, but with joy that God has, Jesus has saved her, and she's helping others with their struggle with pregnancies. How about the same-sex attracted people? Do you still squirm, you know, if they talk a little bit different? Their mannerisms, you know, sort of, oh, you a little bit. See, we have to learn. (laughs) If you say Jesus is enough, then He is. And again, I say there are safeguards in place, all right? There's wisdom, there's discernment that's needed. Then you've got to walk with people who can teach you how to do this. When we share these things openly, it's not to give permission that they can do the same things as we have done before, but to tell them we can come to Jesus. Point number five, an encouragement of faith. We spoke about Jairus, there he was, he was witnessing this whole thing. I ask you, would you imagine how the woman would have felt when Jesus exposed her? Now I ask you, can you imagine how Jairus would have felt? Have you ever been in a rush for something like you really need to get the toilet quick? I'm just using that as an example, right? I mean, you just, when you gotta go, you gotta go. And there you are, you're making a beeline, right, for your home. That's Jairus. He's, he's, He's heading straight for his home. And suddenly Jesus stops and he goes, who touched my clothes? Imagine Jairus, right? Imagine, come on. You guys got great imagination. Oh, come on, Jesus. I'll buy you a new shirt. Right? I mean, imagine Jairus. Look, you'll miss this if you don't put yourself in this picture. Who touched my clothes? Oh, okay, okay. She did, okay, let's go. No, she investigates, right? The disciples talk to him. He talked to her. No, I really felt power go out. Oh, do it. Hello? Come on. I'm prolonging this, but I want you to feel how Jairus felt. And then the woman owns up. I can just see him rolling his eyes. Because Jesus then speaks to her. And they have another conversation. Right? We laugh now, but if you were Jairus, how would you have felt? Jesus says, daughter, your faith. Da- da- daughter, that's it, daughter. My daughter, excuse me. Have you forgotten? My daughter. This one. All right. Then finish, episode done. The scene has been stolen. The servants come and say, don't trouble the master. Your daughter has died. Huh? Okay? How would you have felt then? 
You want to kill someone? You want to punch someone? You want to scream? You don't even know whether you're angry or you're sad, right? I just want you to imagine all these things because the Bible is real, friends. Let's not just gloss over Scripture and say, oh yeah, we touched Jesus' hand, yeah, amen. You know? Oh yeah, he raised the, the, the little girl from there and then, and then, and then she had a sashimi for lunch. You know, we miss all this. Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher? Everything, I submit to you, everything, everything, I mean everything, we have crumbled. Crumbled there and then. And the moment Jesus heard that, Mark chapter 5, verse 36, the moment he heard that word, he knew that split second, that's how fast God is, you understand? He said to the ruler, he said to Jairus, do not be afraid, only believe. Don't you love Jesus? Don't you love Jesus, right? Do not be afraid, only believe. Now, there are two responses I give to you. I probably will take the first response. Believe? Excuse me? Believe? It's the foil's fault. She foiled my faith. Still believe her. She, she messed everything up. I mean, it's all her fault. If she didn't touch you, you might have got there in time. I mean, come on, Jesus. That's how I probably would have responded. But then there's a second response. And maybe she, he was there for a very good reason. Maybe she was there for a very good reason. He was already losing his heart. If Jesus commended her faith and then she was healed, then Jesus, you can save my daughter too if I believe that. How would you respond? Which one, right? And I ask, if Jairus was placed there specifically to witness the woman, was the woman placed there specifically to encourage Jairus? I can't figure this out. <laughs> because God is God, you see? And sometimes you might be wondering, why wait 12 years to heal this woman? For this reason, it was for Jairus. How do you explain the timing of God? It blows my mind. You see, and here's the principle, my dear friends. Have you been encouraged by the faith of someone else? I'm sure you have, right? You see, it was a timing thing and you held on to that faith and at that point in time, it helped you. Have we also encouraged others by our own faith? I believe you have too. Maybe you don't know. And this is what the community is about. Jairus might be thinking, what's, what's there for me to learn from anyone else? I mean, I am the leader of the synagogue. Jesus is the only one that can teach me anything, so I only learn from Jesus. That day, he learned from a woman. If that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what would. And in the custom of that day, a man would never learn anything from a woman. Point number six, a child of God at any age. Matthew chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus turns around, sees her, and says, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And here I want you to see the focus on the word daughter. Jesus says, daughter. Note the parallel. Now we are studying the book of Matthew. This is not the first time he has addressed, he has addressed someone by this term of affection. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. And this is Matthew chapter 9, verse 22. 20 verses earlier, the paralytic was the one who received this phrase. Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. 
Do you know that there were two daughters on that scene that day? One was Jairus' daughter. The other one was a child of God. And it's a term of affection. Why? Because the first level, usually now if you are in ministry, you're in psychology, you're in counseling, you know, the first level of restoration or rejection is always that of the family. Always, right? And that's why when you and I are saved, immediately God says, you are my son and you are my daughter. That's it, right? No one saves you immediately after that and then, then pushes you out to do all kinds of crazy things and say, okay, I have a new slave now. No. He loves you as a son and as a daughter and because He loves you and you love Him, you're willing to do anything the Father says. So although we may be born servants of Jesus Christ, when we are slaves of righteousness, there's a different relationship. We are sons and we are daughters. And that's why today, if you want to minister restoration, reconciliation, you must learn this yourself so that you can minister to sons and daughters of God. I tell you that in the church, this identity is so critical but so missed by everyone. We, we sing, we say, we talk, but we don't believe it. And so we remain orphans. We think that we are pushed to do more work so that the Father or Jesus would love us more. You've got it upside down. You're misaligned. You're misaligned. You better come back to an alignment. Get to know that the Father loves you. Daughter, hear that tonight. Son. And then from that position and that posture, move forward. It doesn't matter how old you are, okay? I am past half century already. I'm still my parents' son, and they still love me. My children are growing up so fast, and it's the same. However old they will become, God willing that I'm still alive, if He allows me, I will still love them. And I know it's the same for all of you as parents. All right? So it doesn't matter how old you are, you're a daughter or a son of God at any age. Finally, seven, last point. Must be perfect number, right? This is just a recap, a reminder. We look at sin, sickness, and salvation again. We've covered this more than a few times. And so I will just share some relationship between these words, and I hope it helps you. Let's look at sin and sickness first. We know that all sickness is a result of original sin, but it is not necessarily a consequence of personal sin. That's my position and you can challenge it because there are other people who would say that you suffer these things because of personal sin. We know that all have sinned, but then not all are physically sick. But yet at the same time, all are spiritually sick and we are spiritually dying. And it shows up in our body. And so in that, we need salvation. So that's a relationship between sin and sickness. Secondly, the relationship between salvation and sickness. Do we say that in salvation, there will always be physical healing? Always, 100% of the time. Okay? Now again, that is very controversial. And if we say yes, then we struggle with the word of faith teaching why not everyone experiences healing even when faith is present? Yeah? 
Of course, they'll tell you it's timing, it's a postponement of things. Fine, I mean, we can rationalize this or justify this. But we struggle. That's all I'm saying. We struggle. And you have to come to your point of view. We believe God does heal still. And He heals physically. Even so, we will always submit to His sovereign will, His authority. I think it's more accurate for us to say that physical healing always points to spiritual healing. Can you see the, the way I'm phrasing this? Right? Because if you say spiritual healing will always have physical healing, we have a big problem. But the opposite is definitely true. That in physical healing, it will always point to a spiritual healing. That's what these signs are for. They are not the main thing. The signs, these miracles of physical healing will always point to a spiritual healing in Jesus Christ. That is more important. Because His authority is over death and it's over disease, but that is pointing to His victory over sin. So physical healing will always point to spiritual healing. So don't miss the bigger picture. Finally, what's the relationship between sin and salvation then? I want you to again note the parallel of Jesus' words to the woman and also to the paralytic, just now we said. To the woman, he says, My daughter, do not be afraid. Your, your faith has made you well. The word made you well is actually your faith has saved you. Your faith has delivered you. Your faith has sozo. So there's a spiritual healing, the element of spiritual healing there. Why? Because the parallel to the paralytic says this, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. So if you bring these two lines together, you begin to see a pair, right? Sins are forgiven, i.e. salvation is received, delivered from sin. Is Matthew consistent? Most definitely. Chapter 1, His name shall be called Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. Can you see? So sin will definitely point to a salvation. And here as we see, your faith saves you. Salvation is entirely by faith. Consistent with our understanding, yes? Okay. So I leave you with these seven points. I've taken time to act it out, dramatize it a little bit for you because this has been a play. And I hope you have enjoyed this scene. And a woman definitely was a scene stealer. She steals the scene, but we have her to thank. Without her, we would not have learned as much, yes? And definitely she stole the scene, but definitely she did not steal God's glory. Jesus remains center stage. He is the king that has authority over disease and death, and we mustn't forget it. But he is approachable and gracious to everyone. He is happy to be interrupted by faith. He cuts through the crowd to get to the woman and he was gentle with the woman. But he casts out the crowd to get to the little girl and he was firm with the mourners. He raised the girl privately behind closed doors. He restores the woman publicly out in the open. The woman touched his hem and she was healed, restored to life. Jesus took the girl by her hand and she was healed, raised to life. It leaves me to ask you again, what is your need today?
Would you recognize Jesus' authority? Believe and reach out to Him by faith. Let's close. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Scriptures, Lord. And as we study the text, Lord, You have uncovered so much for us by Your Holy Spirit. Sometimes we are guilty of just simplifying and spiritualizing things and we think we know it all. But Lord, it's in the little details that you show us how much you care for us and how much you love us, that no detail is too small for you. It's not our status, it's not our personhood, it's not whether we are man or woman, how rich we are, how poor we are. We all have that same need. We need you, Lord. And so we come before you and we seek you by faith, knowing you will answer. And as it happened for this woman after 12 years, we also realize that there is a perfect timing for what you want to do in each of our lives. And so we give you thanks for Jairus. We give you thanks for this, this woman that we don't even know her name, but you know her name. And with that same blessing, I, I pray for those who are gathered here this evening. If there's a need now, will you receive an answer for that? In Jesus' name. I pray for those who are listening in, if there's a need in your heart, that you will also lay hold of the promises and the person of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord Jesus, you are the star. You are the main character. And we give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.